Is it for you? Coke or Pepsi? Ford or Chevy? Nike or Reeboks? Microsoft or Apple? We live in a society and culture in which marketing is driven often by brand loyalty. Loyalty to certain brands, perhaps because you've had a good experience, or perhaps it's because you grew up living in a home that drinks Pepsi, and so you buy Pepsi today, or perhaps your parents always drove a Chevy, and so you yourself buy Chevy. This morning I was reminded why I do not like Microsoft as I was trying to use the computer in the back, Um, but perhaps it's because you have bad experiences uh, like that where you choose uh, a competitor. Brand loyalty, loyalty to certain brands. At the heart of it, uh, there's a sense of pride that comes along with brand loyalty. Uh, Those that choose Pepsi over Coke will make sure to tell you that, that, that Pepsi is a superior product to Coca-Cola. Even today, as I was thinking about this illustration of Coke and Pepsi, it's not really popular to drink soda. You know, it's kind of um, looked down upon. But, but regardless, those that like Ford over Chevy, they'll tell you why the Ford is so much better than Chevy or why an Apple product is better than one that Microsoft has built. We have even in our relationships... Loyalty, right? An expectation of loyalty in our friendships. Expectations of loyalty in our marriages. Even in the church, we have these expectations. And oftentimes, loyalty is built around covenants. You don't really use that word covenant much. Um, Perhaps in places in life where you might see that would be, of course, marriage. The marriage covenant. Uh, We use the word vows. And when a a husband and a wife uh, exchange vows, they are making a covenant with one another. Sickness and in health till death do. There's a covenant. There's, There's boundaries to that covenant. Or perhaps you as an employer or employee, you have a contract, a covenant, right? I'm going to show up to work. I promise And your employer says, well, and I promise to pay you uh, when you do your work. Even here in church, we use that word covenant, uh, an old word, but a word that's helpful. Uh, In our church covenant, that is, it, it marks out the boundaries of our relationship with one another. How we promise to serve one another and how we promise to aid and support one another. How we promise as a congregation to continue to commend the gospel to those around us. We know that the word covenant itself comes from the Bible. It's a good Bible word. And and really covenants are, are throughout the Bible. We see them, the first covenant being with Adam. The covenant that he made with man. This relationship that he made with Adam and God made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant even with his people at Mount Sinai in the Sinai covenant, what we call the old covenant. In Jeremiah, God promised a new covenant that he would make with God's, with his people. 
We know even in the very first pages of the Bible, there is a covenant within the covenant there as God lays out the marriage covenant. And one of the things that is central to these covenants is love. Love is what binds the covenant together. And this morning we're going to consider a covenant that David made with Jonathan. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them and and turn to chapter 18. I know this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 20. But two weeks ago I promised, or a week ago, last week, I promised that we would come back and consider this first section in chapter 18. and, uh, And I'm fulfilling that promise to you. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, you'll notice here that upon David's defeat of Goliath, meets with Jonathan. And notice here, as soon as he had finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. It was love that had motivated this covenant relationship uh, to begin. Uh, Jonathan loved David and David loved him. And we're going to think this morning about how God uses these covenants. Just as a reminder, David reflects in his life Jesus. And so you might be like, where is he going with this covenant thing? Uh, Where we're going is Jesus is the fulfillment of what we see pictured in 1 Samuel chapter 20. In this relationship between Jonathan and David is a reflection of God's relationship to his people through our covenant with our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to begin reading in chapter 20. So turn over to chapter 20 now, and we're going, to, we're going to read it beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, chapter 20. Just notice how it's just brimming with a reflection of Christ. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks... Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. 
for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out to the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please, please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow in the new moon is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hide your, hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on the side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, lives, it is safe for you, and there's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say that anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered him, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to go be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this is the reason he is not at the table with the king. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put Saul to, David excuse me, to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him, 
And when the boy came to the place of the arrow and Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, bo- because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall between, be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. this morning as we consider this relationship between David and Jonathan, I want us to look at this idea of covenants and see how this covenant that David and Jonathan had made with one another really plays out as a picture of our covenant with God. How Jonathan faced the fear of man and overcame it with the fear of God. How the covenant provided Uh, provisions for them that their relationship would be built upon. So in our passage this morning, uh, we really learn three provisions that that our ultimate covenant with God gives us as his people. So first, our covenant with God provides security. Secondly, our covenant with God provides a choice. And thirdly, our covenant with God provides peace. Peace. I want us to understand these sort of three aspects of security, a choice that covenants demand, and also peace that they afford. The first thing we see here is that our covenant with God provides security. There was a sense of security in the covenant that Jonathan and David had made with one another. In verses 1 through 3, we see David's fear of man. David was not perfect. He was a sinful man, just like we are sinful. Uh, Last week we saw David's heroism where he continually trusted the Lord and, and fled from Saul. But here we see David fleeing from Samuel and questioning why Saul would have him killed. Look with me again here. You'll see him come to Jonathan and says, listen, what have I done? Is there some sin in my life? Is there something that I have done to offend Saul that I don't know about? Jonathan, tell me, what is it about your father? Why does he want to kill me? And then you'll notice he has that statement there in verse 3, at the end of verse 3. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Uh, Here, sort of reminiscent of what happened uh, weeks prior when Saul tried to throw his spear at uh, at David to kill him. There was but a step. He missed him only by a step between him and death. David knew that his life hang in the balance and he was afraid. He had lost sight of the greatness of God and began to be afraid of Saul. He had forgotten that he was the giant killer, but yet for him, Saul became a giant for which he was afraid. 
And in the midst of this, Jonathan is confused and saying, truly, my father would not want to kill you. And if he did, he would have told me. And so David has a plan that he that we've read that, that to kind of uncover his father's murderous plans. Perhaps Jonathan is naive. Perhaps he's just thinking that um, these seasons in his life, you'll remember last week, Jonathan spared David's life by going to his father and averting his anger from him. Regardless, we're not sure why Jonathan is this, but he demonstrates tremendous kindness. In verses 9 through 11, we see the, the kindness of Jonathan here. Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm was to come you, would I not tell you? We see tremendous kindness on the behalf of, of Jonathan here. And then we can see that Jonathan then faces David's fear. This is what Jonathan is providing him. In the midst of David's fear, Jonathan is coming in and saying, Listen, remember the Lord. Remember who the Lord is. Remember our covenant that we made with one another. Remember your relationship with God. In verses 12 through 13, we see a promise for now. The Lord of God of Israel be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day. Behold, if it is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that, it, that you may go in safety. Jonathan here demonstrates tremendous kindness to David and promises that he will tell him the truth. That if Jonathan finds out that everything is good, everything's great, that, that Saul is going to kill him, well, he's going to tell him. And of course he's going to tell him. He's not afraid to tell the truth. We see also a petition for the future. He asks for something. Jonathan says, listen, this covenant that we're about to enter into, this renewed covenant that is going to provide us security and safety, uh, I want you to understand that if we enter into this relationship and I go and face my father on your behalf and I stare down my father, I must be assured of my future. That's what we see here in verse 13. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In other words, Jonathan recognizes that the Lord is not with his father. In other words, that the Spirit of God has removed Himself from His Father and is now on David. And throughout this whole scene, what we see is Jonathan is trusting the Lord and Saul is trusting himself. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan knows that David will be victorious. That David will reign as king. And so he's like, do me a favor. Will you promise to take care of my family? Because I know that what is going to happen is I'm going to be David's enemy. And, and truly he does die. Jonathan later in the story dies. But we're told in 2 Samuel... That Jonathan's son, Mohishasheth, is lame, and David takes him into his own house and cares for him and provides for him, fulfilling this covenant that they make that day. 
Finally, here in verses 16 through 17, we see that David and Jonathan make a covenant of love. A covenant based on love, centered around love for one another. A formal covenant. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Covenants provide security. This is why they were entering into a covenant, so that there would be security among them, a safe place. They could trust one another. They could depend on one another. They could know that, that, look, I'm going to go face down the enemy and you're not going to stab me in the back. That you're going to come through on your word. This was a vulnerable place for both of these men, but yet they are entering into this covenant, a covenant of love. Spurgeon, writing about covenants, uh, meditating on them, writes this, It is a particularly pleasing to the people of God to remember the certainty of the covenant while meditating upon God's steadfast, sure love. They delight to celebrate it as a signed, sealed, and delivered. Their hearts often overflow with joy to think of its immutability as a covenant that neither time nor eternity, life nor death, will ever be able to break. A covenant as old as eternity and as everlasting as the rock of ages. Well, friends, this is the covenant that those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, the covenant that you've entered into with God is a secure covenant. It's a guaranteed covenant. This is what Paul writes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, Paul is arguing that the covenant that that we have entered into through the gospel of Jesus Christ is an eternal covenant. It is something that is grounded not in time and space, but in the eternity past in the mind of God. When David was in trouble, his covenant with Jonathan provided him the safety when the world around him was falling apart. When he was facing the darkest trials of his life, he turned to this covenant that he had made. Friends, this is what the church covenant that we use regularly is meant to do. This is why we call it a church covenant. Why Baptists have for uh, really 200 years used church covenants in order to reflect exactly what we see in this text. That we will know how to encourage one another, to provide security to one another in our relationships, to shape those relationships. When a group of Christians within the membership of a church love each other sacrificially and faithfully, that's what reflects the gospel in our community and and why we want to commend that to one another. I just wonder, what are some practical ways that you can show steadfast love to one another? The love that God has shown you, how do you show that with one another this week? Perhaps a member of the church. Remember what Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you're to love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, we've entered into a a secure relationship through membership in the local church to demonstrate this kind of security that we have. 
A reflection, though a very small and dim reflection, of our eternal security with God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've entered into an eternal covenant. It is secured not by our own blood, not by something that we've given, but by the blood of Christ alone. And therefore, there is comfort and security in the face of trial to know that nothing can take us out of the hand of God, that nothing can snatch us out. And friend, I wonder this morning, what are the trials of your life? Do they leave you in an insecure place? Only true security can be found through Christ. We see also, number two, our covenant with God provides really a choice. Jonathan and David had a choice. It really was a demand upon them. It was demanded. If they were going to enter into this covenant, it was going to come at a cost. Someone may die. This was a serious covenant. This was no small matter in their life. Jonathan could say the wrong thing to his father and his head could be removed. Jonathan was becoming a traitor to his own father. It came at a tremendous cost. In verses 18 through 29, we see Jonathan's plan. Jonathan comes up with a plan, a way to inform David of his father's will. They create a secret plan in order to inform him so that, of course, if it is not going to be well and Jonathan and David are at enmity, there must be a way to communicate this. No cell phones. are going to be able to text him and say, hey, my dad wants to kill you. Uh, just a heads up. He had to create some sort of system. And what we see here is this sort of elaborate scheme uh, that is come up with by Jonathan and you may question what is going on here with Jonathan deceiving. They are lying to Saul. Whatever you think of that, he seems to be suspending one ethical law for another. But regardless, what we see in this is the costliness of fearing God more than man. Jonathan had a choice. He could either stare down his father, go before his father, or just simply ignore David and just chalk it up as just another servant of Saul, dead because of my father's rage. Well, if you look at verses 30 through 34, you really begin to see the cost it was to Jonathan. Uh, Saul exposes Jonathan. He smells out his lie. He is no fool. He knows that Jonathan and David are close. Perhaps he's seen them around the temple or around the king's palace. Perhaps he's seen them talking in the courtyard. He knows their relationship. Perhaps it's been rumored by the other servants. We're told that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He was red-faced. He was done. And he begins to curse not only Jonathan, but his own wife. He says to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Jonathan, you are perverse. And you come from a rebellious 
woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? In other words, your choice of David is shameful. The most shameful thing, one's nakedness being exposed. More than that, you see what is driving Saul is that, listen, if David is alive, you can't become the king. Naturally, if when Saul dies, Jonathan would become king. Uh, Saul is thinking about this in sort of man's perspective. Uh, the succession from his children. Uh, Saul's son Jonathan would be next in line to the throne. And for Saul, all he's consumed by is power. But what Jonathan is consumed by is the greatness of God. Jonathan here is saying, listen, I don't want the throne. The throne is David's. I want David to be king. I don't want to be king. There's a true cost with fearing God more than man. We can see that Jonathan's relationship with his father is completely ruined. He's exposed as a traitor. Saul will never trust him again. He loses his own father over his friendship with David because he trusted God more than he trusted man. Friends, the cost of following Jesus is high. It can come at a cost from our relationships in the church, our time, our energy, our money. Consider the cost of having relationships in the local church. The time it takes to meet and disciple one another. Think about the energy that goes into spending countless hours discipling a brother or sister in Christ only to see them grow just a small or the cost can come from outside the church. Through hostility, through confusion, persecution. Perhaps even in your own life you've faced uh, some form of persecution for following Jesus. Maybe in your own family they, you're derided, laughed at. Oh my, you, you're going to do the Jesus thing this week? That's great. Perhaps you come from a family where family loyalty and the family religion is so important that to abandon that religion is seen as the most shameful thing you could ever do. Following Jesus is costly. But the more we see the value of knowing Christ, the easier it is for us to accept the cost. For Jonathan, he was willing to pay the price because of his relationship with David. Friends, I just wonder, how can we help one another savor Christ? How can we encourage one another with the words of the Apostle Paul, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For, the, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. We really see in Jonathan here a a person to emulate, one who feared God more than men. And enter, entering into this covenant with our Lord it comes at a great cost. 
Remember Jesus, it was when the crowds were the largest that he said some of the most provocative things. Said some of the most hard sayings. In other words, Jesus wanted to be very clear about what following him would look like. And it was not going to be easy. He said, unless you hate your father and your mother, your brother and your sister, even your own life, then you can't be my disciple. That's pretty provocative. And Jesus wasn't saying that we were going to literally hate. What he meant by that was that your love for me will be so great that all other love will diminish and seem small. It'll seem like hate. Because you're so loyal to me. You're so committed to me. Or on another occasion, when he said, as the world has hated me, so they're going to hate you. Friends, there's a choice to be made. There's a cost to be counted. Jesus regularly encouraged his disciples to count the cost. To deny themselves. To take up their cross and to follow him. Friend, I wonder how have you not counted the cost this week in following Christ? Let that be a daily behavior in our lives where we we count the cost. We understand that following Jesus is going to require me to deny myself, to deny my passions and my pleasures and my wants, that I'm not the captain of my own destiny. That following Jesus literally means following Jesus. I mean, you're not the leader. You're the follower, right? You remember in kindergarten we all wanted to be the leader of the line? Um, You're not the leader. You're the follower. Are you following Jesus? And I don't mean the Jesus of your own creation, your own imagination. I mean the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Scriptures. Are you following Is it demonstrable by your obedience to His Word and to His commands? Friend, I encourage you to follow Jesus because there you will find peace. The last thing we see in our text, verses 35 through 42, is that our covenant with God provides peace. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the appointed time and they went through the plan. The secret message was delivered. My father wants you dead. We're not surprised by this. We already know that this is what Saul desires. But notice here at the end, as it's revealed to to David, verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. What a very sad picture. The man, get this in your mind, the man who stared down a nine foot nine tall giant with a sling and stone. The man who grabbed lions and bears by the beards and snapped their necks. 
is weeping, is broken, is crushed under the weight of this trial. David's grief can be felt. He knows that he has a warrant out for him and that the king of Israel wants him dead. More than that, I think what is motivating his tears is this broken relationship. No longer will Jonathan and David be able to meet publicly. No longer will they be able to enjoy one another's companionship and friendship. Their love for one another. We see pictured here our own Savior weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. As the crushing cry of crucify him, crucify him would meet him the next day. He knew that the true king of Israel would, one, would pour out his wrath upon him on the cross and he was crushed and grieved. But in the midst of David's grief, because of the covenant that they had, notice what Jonathan does. Verse 742, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. (laughs) You're a dead man. Go in peace. (laughs) See, Jonathan's eyes were eyes of faith. He was not afraid of his father's murderous plans. Jonathan calls... David to go in peace knowing he is surrounded by trouble. Knowing that his enemy is steps away from killing him. And he shows us in his words the peace that only a covenant can afford. Friends, this world offers peace in so many ways. If you don't know what I mean by that, watch carefully. Don't fast forward through the commercials. Watch them. And listen to the message being this. I will give you peace if you buy this. Or if you do this. We know that this world offers us so many things through entertainment to fleeting relationships to drugs and alcohol. So many things are given to us. But each of them fail. This is why we we see and trust when an addict gives up one, he often moves to the next. Why? It's because he is looking for peace in all the wrong places. Nothing in this world can fulfill 
that peace that we seek. Everyone in this room desires peace. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you hope to follow Jesus or not, you've been created by God to only be compatible with Him. And you can try to plug and play things all day long and you can do different things and think that you'll find peace in them and they will not work. There's only one person, the person of Jesus Christ, who can give you the peace that your soul seeks. And take some time today and encourage one another with the peace of Christ. If you're a Christian, encourage your Christian brothers and sisters. Talk to the person you came with or another brother or another sister about the peace that you know and experience through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then take that and turn it into prayer and pray for peace daily. Pray that you would know and experience peace. I I wonder this morning, what is it that is robbing you of your peace? Well, what anxieties do you have that are robbing you of that peace that passes all understanding? Perhaps it's a failing relationship. Perhaps it's difficulty at work. Perhaps it's financial. Perhaps it's your health. Friend, have you thought to pray to God that you would have peace even in the midst of trial? See, so often what we pray is, God, deliver me, save me from this trial. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good prayer. But why don't we also pray, God, Give me peace in the trial. Give me peace in the midst. Memorize and meditate a verse like John 16.33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you're going to have problems. world's broken. Your health is going to fail. Your money is going to run out. Your relationships are going to break. Take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. You don't need to overcome the world. I've overcome the world, Jesus says. Find peace in me. Friend, do you believe that this is true? Do you trust that these words, allow these words to run away whatever is robbing you of your peace in Jesus? Friends, our covenant with God provides us with an inexpressible, unquenchable peace. A peace that only comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And you too can know that relationship and have that peace today. If you will only stop living life your own way. Stop trying to find peace in all of these various ways and find it in Christ. Trust in the finished work of Christ. That He died for your sins. And He was raised again. That you might have life. Jesus once told this parable. The kingdom of heaven 
is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus' point is so very clear and straightforward. The kingdom of God is worth losing everything for. The kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth losing your own life. Friend, I wondered this morning, do you believe that? Jonathan did. Jonathan believed that, that worshiping God and fearing Him was worth Losing everything. And I conclude with this from Calvin, which is so helpful. We are greatly in need of such a warning. For we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life fades from our view and in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation which they deserve. Justly, therefore, does Christ speak in such lofty terms of the excellence of eternal life. We ought not to feel uneasy or at relinquishing on account of it whatever we reckon in other respects to be valuable. In other words, the kingdom of God is of such great and immense value that a relationship with God, this eternal covenant with Him is so valuable that you're willing to lose everything for it. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that Your Word would be sealed upon our souls, that a better sermon was heard than the one preached. Father, continue to speak through Your Word to Your people. For Your glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen.